Hey there, General Red Review here with Old Colony Pest Control. If you're having pest problems in a commercial or residential setting, we're the people to call. Veteran-owned, based in Massachusetts and Rhode Island, Old Colony has been here servicing your homes proudly, and we plan to keep it up. Our team is fast, efficient, and reliable. We go above and beyond to cater each project's individual need. No task is too much for us, so give us a call. 774 400 5993. Again, the number is 774-400-5993. Hope to hear from you soon. General Red Review, out. Commentator is Joe O'Brien. Here is the motion picture record released by the United States Navy of the havoc wrought by the Japs' sneak sky and sea raid on Pearl Harbor, America's mid-Pacific naval bastion. On December 7, 1941, Japan, like its infamous Axis partners, struck first and declared war afterwards. Costly to our Navy was the loss of war vessels, airplanes and equipment, but more costly to Japan was the effectiveness of its foul attack in immediately unifying America in its determination to fight and win the war thrust upon it and to win the peace that will follow. The Japs copied their German masters in striking hard at airfields. Hickam Field, northwest of Honolulu, and the Ford Island Naval Plane Base were the first objectives of Japan's treachery. Scores of planes were bruised and battered by the Japs' aerial bombs. Many of these were demolished beyond repair. Direct hits were scored on hangars, and these were badly shattered. Equipment and airplane supplies were reduced to smoldering ruins. Here at the Naval Air Station is grim and positive evidence of Jap treachery. Here, foul blows were struck while Jap diplomats were talking peace in Washington. America lost three destroyers. Here are seen the United States destroyers Downs and Shaw as they rest on the bottom of Pearl Harbor with decks awash after Jap bombers make direct hits on their decks. First to feel the sting of Japanese steel are the USS Oklahoma and Utah, the latter a 33-year-old target ship. Accurate hits by the enemy bombers make short work of these two naval bulwarks. Now, with their keels practically out of water, they lie helpless wrecks and a sad reminder of cowardly strategy. To make possible a surprise attack within Pearl Harbor, the Japs built two-man submarines to enable them to fire sneak blows within waters that are narrow and tortuous. Several of these surprise weapons were blown from the water by direct hits of our naval gunners. Others were beached and captured. While sky and sea fire were still raging, salvage crews inspected our naval craft to estimate what may be saved. Before the din of bursting bombs had been silenced, preparations were underway to salvage these two warships. 
At low tide, the huge propeller of the Oklahoma, stilled by the enemy, was high above water. It is believed that the small two-man Jap submarines carrying dual torpedo tubes were responsible for these two losses to our Pacific fleet. actual bombing of the mighty USS Arizona by Jap planes. These pictures were made by a fearless cameraman who thought nothing of his personal safety to make possible this record for all posterity. A single lucky hit was responsible for the disaster that befell the Arizona when a Jap bomb falling directly through one of the battleship's funnels exploded in the engine room and set ablaze tons of fuel oil. Dense black smoke billowed to the sky as the massive control tower began to keel over. The Arizona's courageous crew stuck to its guns until the very end. Here was displayed heroism that will live forever in the glorious annals and traditions of the American Navy. The once mighty Arizona now rests on Pearl Harbor's muddy bottom a pitiful relic of its former self, a grim monument to the treachery of Japan. The once mighty dreadnought's armor plate is twisted and torn, but the great battleship's control tower still stands, a defiant beacon that in days to come will cast its shadow upon Nippon's very shores. At Pearl Harbor, at Hickam Field, in the bomb-pocked streets of Honolulu, ever is written history, history with a tragic, treacherous pen, history that 130 million Americans will never forget. And in days to come, the Japs, too, will remember Pearl Harbor. Here is a tragic, unforgettable page in the annals of America. Here the cunning deceit of the Japs will never be forgotten. Here they hoped to score a knockout before the war began. The Arizona's gun crews, battered and broken, fired to the last. Their guns pointed skyward from whence the enemy appeared. The Japs' sneak blow cost hundreds of military and civilian lives. The treacherous attack cost our Pacific fleet two battleships outright, another capsized, the loss of three destroyers and a mine layer. While bombs were still bursting and flames still pouring from our shattered naval craft, a light United States cruiser valiantly moves out to join the fleet and avenge Pearl Harbor. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? This is blasphemy. This is a booth! Alright, it's your boy Sinister One broadcasting live from the City of Champions. You are listening to the booth. It is December 7th, 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. As you guys have all just seen, we just had the video up and um, 
you know, it's still today, it still tears at everybody's emotions. You know, it's a day that will live in infamy, as it was spoken. That very impressive speech that fired up an entire nation. 40s. Um, I'll go around the horn real quick, let these guys talk about it. I'm going to let Ken Diesel go first because I want Rob to talk about this, you know, the military and all, and how much it means to the military to be in the military on this date. So I'll let Ken go first. Wow. Wow. I know that. Wow. Um, R squid. to do with European or world affairs. And uh, and obviously the bombing of Pearl Harbor meant the United States was now gonna be part of what became World War II. And uh, that tremendous undertaking and the greatest generation who in my estimation still remains the greatest generation. I mean that from a veteran standpoint as well as others. Uh, you know, we hopefully we never have to repeat that quite frankly, but you know, paying homage to the people who served in World War II, obviously the sacrifices on, on Pearl Harbor on, on that day, but also the people then fought in the Pacific and the European theaters. I mean, if we think that fighting a war is hard now, just remember what that was like. And they, they served you know, continuously in combat for a lot longer than, than we do in, in the modern day. Uh, not, not that it's easy, trust me, I, I know firsthand, this is not easy and I don't mean to minimize the service of people today. Uh, they deserve all of the appreciation and gratitude of, of our nation. Uh, but obviously, World War II was the greatest generation for many reasons, from D-Day to you know Iwo Jima and and everything in between. It was just a, an amazing part of our history and led to the United States becoming what it what it was after World War II, which was an international leader and a superpower. And you know that may never have happened. So uh, it was an awful day, and it was a tragedy that we had to fight a world war. Uh, but it's interesting to see how the future has changed because of it. And we can't ignore also the fact that, you know, there was another historic moment, which is the flight of the Enola Gay, which dropped that first bomb on Hiroshima. And I watched, I actually watched a special with some of the people, the survivors and who are still around who were on that plane and people who talk about 
that 45 seconds of release. When they released that bomb on Hiroshima, they said it was the longest 45 seconds ever. And the guy, one of the guys that they interviewed, he said he thought it was a dud. Thought it was a dud because it took so long for whatever to happen happened. We all know history changed. You know, it, it, it happened. You know, that was one of the major turning factors of that that period. So again, it's the 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. I wanted to make sure that we acknowledge that and let people know exactly what happened on this date because you know as we move along as you see here. They're, they're changing school books. They're changing history as we know it. People on the internet are coming up with their own ideas and declarations and how things happened and getting away from what actually happened, which is why I chose that clip, the actual news footage from that day. And me and Rob were actually laughing off air because back in the day, it's funny, you know, they used to take news footage like this and they would put it into movie theaters and put music behind it and, and things of that sort. And, um, you know, they brought that back for Starship Troopers, kind of give you that feel. But that was a big thing back then. The military utilized entertainment as a way to, to get the news to the masses. And, you know, it's, it's just weird to see how things kind of repeat themselves. But we've got to get in to our show. Uh, last week, I had no guests, so I have no guests to thank for coming on the show this week. This week is the first week of the month, and, you know, I have my special guys on. So we're going to get right into my Sponsors, Michael Douglas Barreto, MDB Electronics. Thank you for your control of the service, my friend out there. Also, Vianna Marie's music, streaming online everywhere. Tactical target systems, my zombie targets when I go over to the range and pull up some themes. RebelRom.com, that's my cousin's clothing line. And veteran Carl Bunnell, veteran-owned business, old colony pest control. You saw his ad before the show. And make sure to check out, reach out to him. We're going to jump right in to the news booth. Now, as you guys know, when these guys come on the show... I have a lot of legal stuff and Biden political stuff and things I like to talk about with these guys because these guys are experts in some of these conversations. I can give my opinion on some weeks when stories come out. These guys are the experts, and I want to make sure that we get the expert opinion out there when we talk some of these stories. Now, news booth, Mayor Wu announces their COVID-19 committee here in Massachusetts as the first Omicron was detected variant was detected here in Massachusetts. Um, so she wanted to make sure she got her committee in place moving forward. At this time, I know Chelsea Mass reinstated the mass mandates for indoor events. Chelsea, they've stepped up and done that, but I haven't seen any other city or towns. Can any uh, Melrose, anywhere out near you, reinstated the mass no. mandates yet? Or? Right now, we're all dealing with the recommendation that you wear a mask if not vaccinated or if you're feeling ill. But right now, there are no mask mandates town-wise. However, and this is a big however, as you know, Sinister One, certain state agencies are requiring mask mandates. Like, it'll be on the MBTA. The airport's requiring it. If you go to the airport, you have to wear a mask. All the courts are requiring you to wear a mask. If you go visit a prison facility, which I have to do during my criminal defense work, I have to wear a mask. A lot of hospitals and rehab centers are, are requiring you to wear a mask regardless of your vaccination status. So even though there's no government mask mandates, a lot of sub-government agencies are requiring it. Right. Now, somebody just informed me that they said that the actually has a major issue going on. I guess Amazon Prime's down. I guess a lot of websites are down. Um, and I guess there's some issues with YouTube. So I'm just going to keep the show going. I'm going to 
record it. And then if I have to upload everything at a, later on so people can check it out, I'm going to do that. But that is a news, breaking news story that there's been a serious internet issue. A lot of sites are being reported down Instagram. We're just going to keep rolling along. It must, it must um, be China getting even for our uh, decision to diplomatically <laughs> boycott the Olympics because China does about 80% of the world's hacking. Right, exactly. Them in Russia, yeah, the other, you know, the top two. The other 15% is done by Russia. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So let's get into the legal booth. I got a, I got a lot of stuff here that I tabled from the last couple of weeks. I wanted to have you guys on. I'm glad Ken showed up because I had to ask Ken this question. Um, about two weeks ago, a Massachusetts judge ordered statewide exclusion of breathalyzer tests from OUI cases. Ken is a defense attorney many, many years. He defended a lot of people in OUI cases. And again, when I read this story, it doesn't surprise me. I'm a guy that worked at the MBTA, a state federal contractor for transportation. But this whole issue of breathalyzer tests being excluded now is just sheer ignorance because... Whoever is in charge of making sure the OUI breathalyzers are calibrated correctly and clean correctly, I guess, wasn't their job or their task that breathalyzers giving false readings. I'm going to let Ken Dietzhoff talk about it. I'm pretty sure he's well aware of this case. Out Very well aware of it. This is actually, this is a part six of the breathalyzer saga. This this has been going on for approximately five years. If if I may, let me go back and give a little science. Now, let me explain. I'm a liberal arts major. I have a law degree. So this had to be dumbed down for me. So I'm going to dumb it down for the rest of you. (laughs) What a breathalyzer does is it has a standard as a machine. It's called calibration. That way. So what it does is take the breath and compare it to this calibration, see how far off the norm it is. Many of us in the legal profession have been claiming for years that unless this thing is meticulously maintained, that calibration is going to be giving out false positives over time. We were all told, you're crazy, you're crazy. The calibration is like a 0.000001% chance. Guess what? We were right. There was a massive problem with the calibration problem, and I'm not, and I don't understand exactly the chemical reaction, but there was a problem. They claimed they fixed it. We said Boldinky. They had an independent audit, and guess what? We were right. The calibration is still off. So the judge says, "Okay, until you fix the problems of the calibration, we're not allowing them to to be brought into evidence." This is critical because this comes on the heels of the drug lab scandal yes a couple yep. years ago yeah this is mm-hmm. the problem science is a wonderful tool it's great but the problem with science is science is very exacting if you're off by even that much your results are horrible the problem is these machines are very 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 sensitive to changes in things like weather moisture Temperature, humidity. And I don't know since the last time you were in a police station. A lot of these police stations, their environment, for no no fault of police officers, can be affected by all of those things. And unless these machines are basically put in a safe zone with a perfectly controlled climate control, it's going to affect the results. And they aren't. 
And that's what's happened. Not only that, and I'll get I'll get into the fact that the problem with the whole theory of the breathalyzer is based on breath, not blood, which is another whole other story, but an issue for another day. So that's why they're no, they're not they're no longer can be used unless. And here's the thing: it wasn't an outright ban like it was the last time. If the Commonwealth can come in and prove they've been properly calibrated by bringing in their own experts and saying at that time. It was calibrated, they can bring it in. The problem is, every time they use the machine now, they got to have an expert there just to say it was properly calibrated, and they're just not going to be able to do that. Hmm. Right? Still technically could use it. Wow, that's crazy stuff. That's, and you're right, it, you know, all it takes a little bit, because you can be considered drunk or not drunk within five tenths to a tenth of, of you yes. know, so yeah, it's very... Oh yeah, that's that's scary. For example, scary the standard right now, there's a presumption that if your BAC, your blood alcohol concentration is 0.08, that's eight hundredths, you are deemed to be intoxicated. The error factor right now is about 0.5. That's how bad it is. Wow. It is and literally five hundred times the fa- your the uh, rate for being intoxicated, the failure rate. And this is why, you know, when I go out, a lot of people, you know, they say, oh, you know, you need to drink. And it's like, no, I carry a CDL. I'm I'm less. Right. I'm 0.04. I can't, you know, so for me, it's not even worth it. You know, it's not even worth it for me to drink a half a beer. And then, like you just said, if it, if I come up against an OUI where it's not calibrated properly and I blow, I could be considered a failure, even though I might be safe, in the safe zone because it wasn't calibrated. Right. Yeah, that's scary. That's some scary stuff. Yep. Stuff. Yep. And that's why that's why under Massachusetts law, you're entitled to a blood test. You can ask for a blood test. The problem is you got to pay for it. You've got to arrange for it. Ouch. So that they don't want to release you to the hospital, you get the blood test. But that, that's an argument for another day. Right. Yep. Exactly. So let's move on into the legal booth. We got a lot of stuff here uh, that we're going to talk about. Um, we've got the clemency. Of Julius Jones, I wanted to touch base on this. This happened actually after R Squid was on the last time. R Squid, you were talking this case over with your class. You were saying you guys were discussing this, and you were hoping that he would be granted clemency. Julius Jones was granted clemency right on the day of his execution. How did that go with your class, and how did you follow up with them on this? Yeah, you know, we've been talking about we we discuss capital punishment in our classes because it's a criminal justice curriculum. So obviously it's a major part of the curriculum. And so anytime I can get a real world example to to use, it's much more helpful than just what's in a textbook or, you know, uh, stuff like that. So when uh, when the Julius Jones case came about, I've, I've talked about it periodically because I've been familiar with it for years. But uh, it, it got back into the news, as we talked about on the last show. Uh, and I'm, and I'm, I'm pleased to see that uh, the governor finally did the right thing. He waited to the 11th hour, but he did do the right thing because there's not it, this isn't just about whether uh, Julius Jones, you know, had some irregularities in his trial or whether or not people thought the death penalty was appropriate or not. There was clear evidence in this case that he was not the person who committed the crime. I mean, you know, it's it's one thing to say, well, there are always some errors or, you know, to try to minimize things that go wrong. People tend to do that sometimes. 
but this was a case where you had the wrong person and the co-conspirator who ratted him out even admitted it later who said yeah i made it up i'm the guy so you know there was there was so much evidence here that the fact that he came so close to death really calls into question some of the fundamental principles you know of the system and of our death penalty system specifically uh so it's a good result It, it should still scare people that it got that close because this was a case that should never have survived the initial appeals uh, for all the reasons we talked about on the show. So that went very well. I, I, I was pleased. I actually got to sign one of the Supreme Court petitions in that case. And uh, and I signed another one uh, in a case out of Texas. I won't use the name on the air. I don't have permission. But uh, I signed two recent ones as, a, as an expert in capital punishment on both sides, actually. Um, I signed two petitions on, on cases where there was very similar, significant questions about whether the person was even guilty, whether they had the right person, whether the convictions should have should have stood. It wasn't just that there were irregularities. That's, you know, I mean, that's a big deal, but that's not enough. It was the fact that they had the wrong person. Wow. wow. It's, it's very important, uh, if ahead, I may, Sister One. Defense lawyers have a set, have a very interesting way of looking at cases. We have two types of cases. There's legal innocence and factual innocence. Legal innocence, as as, as Colonel Resnick alluded to, was there irreligious. I'm sorry, I can't speak. There were problems with the trial, problems with jury selection, evidence coming in that shouldn't have come in because it should have been suppressed. Maybe the judge screwed up with jury instructions. Those are we call legal innocence, meaning we we don't you know, he didn't get a fair trial. And then we call factual innocence, where we actually prove, no, this is the wrong guy. No, it doesn't make a difference. Even if you got a perfect trial, you still screwed up the verdict. And as Rob was saying, this is a case of factual innocence, which is a lot rarer than legal innocence. Yep. And this scared, you know, frankly, I was shocked. I did not believe it was going to happen. I thought they were an executed innocent man. I am greatly relieved they didn't do it. As Rob said, they waited the 11th hour, but I suppose... Called that old great saying, better sooner, sooner than later, better later than never. Now, and, keep in mind, he, he's, he hasn't been released. The governor simply right. commuted his sentence from death to life. He is still stuck behind bars for the rest of his life until he gets a legitimate appeal. So this is not over for he and his family. At least he's not being executed now where there's a chance that right. they could get a proper appeal. But he lost all of his appeals initially. Right. Now, those appeals were based on capital punishment. Now, maybe he'll get... Uh, you know, some fresh look. I, I don't know, but the, the fact that this case wasn't overturned on, on any of the previous appeals is still just a travesty. Yeah. But and, and I'm not an anti-death penalty crusader. I mean, I there are cases where I think it's appropriate. There are cases when I think maybe it's not appropriate. But uh, when you have somebody who's clearly an innocent person, the, the very thought of of this happening is is antithetical to my notion of justice on on either side of the of the aisle that I practiced. Well. I totally agree with that, but to quote a friend of mine, a Marine Corps veteran, who one says it's a hell of a lot of easy, hell of a lot easier to break someone out of a jail than a coffin. True. We got we have a lot. We got a lot of these to talk about. We definitely got to talk. Um, last week we had Mr. Kyle Rittenhouse was found, you know, acquitted of the charges for self defense. That's going to be coming up. But Crystal Kaiser, he is the woman in also Kenosha who slain her sex trafficking abuser. So everybody's watching this case to see how this goes. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this case. Um, she killed mm-hmm. her sex trafficker um, in self-defense. Um, very, uh, I guess there's somebody was saying that it was a robbery, 
Um, if you guys are familiar with it, I'll let you guys speak on I'll let Ken go first on this. Well, yes, this was, let's at least start out with the facts. The facts is there is no doubt this woman killed this man. There's no question. She never denied that. The theory of, of the com- of the uh, district attorney's officer or, or the prosecutors was this was a robbery gone bad. She is saying, no, that she was being sexually trafficked by this man, and this is the only way she, she could get out of it. As to what the truth is, it's very murky because everybody involved in this has, to say the least, a rather complicated relationship with the truth. And a lot of people are saying that the system failed her, and there has been... Oh, in the past, there's been a number of cases of, of women being sexually trafficked, killing their abusers, and being charged with murder. The question is, does the fact that she was sexually trafficked justify taking a human life? That's a good question. Was this a case of premeditated murder? Was it a case of manslaughter? Or was it a case of justifiable homicide? And that's why we have courts. Uh, Squid, anything to add to that? Yeah, you know, obviously sex trafficking is a critical issue. You have, based on which source of information you use, there could be millions or tens of millions of sex trafficking cases every year around the world and hundreds of thousands of them in the United States. So this is an area that requires a lot of study and a lot of effort, both to prevent it and to properly prosecute it. Uh, some of the cases can be can be difficult because these people are not as stupid as some other criminals. They've got really good networks and and systems in place that makes it very difficult to uh, you know you could you could you could it's like a spider. You could take one of its eight legs, but it still has seven more. So um, in this particular case, you have a, a situation where the the theory here, and, and I'm not so sure I agree with the charging decision, but the theory here is that this was a murder case, not a self-defense case. The defense is claiming self-defense, and this would be, to to try to put it in in terms that people might follow, um, you have a a theory of self-defense for victims of domestic violence, because normally to claim self-defense, you have to actually be threatened with imminent death. I mean, it has to be, if you don't kill this person, they're about to kill you, so therefore you're justified in in killing them using deadly force in self-defense because you're about to be killed yourself. Duh, right? That makes kind of easy sense. But when you're a victim of domestic violence, what what you find, there's psychological studies uh, for decades that, that show this, is that a lot of the people who are victims of domestic violence um, are not able to necessarily defend themselves in, in that way at the moment, right? Because they're victimized. That's the whole point of what's happening to them. They're, un- they're incapable of defending themselves. They suffer beating after beating after beating. It could go on for years. And, and people say, well, why don't they leave? Because it isn't that simple. We don't have time to go into right. that. It's just not. So there's a different type of self-defense that a lot of jurisdictions recognize in this type of violent situation that it doesn't have to be imminent in the sense that you're literally about to be killed at that moment. You simply have to show that it is so frequent that at any given moment you could be victimized with with extreme violence again, and therefore you could sort of preemptively act in self-defense. It's one of the only areas where the law would recognize that because if you wait until you're actually threatened with deadly violence, you're going to be killed. And so the law in many jurisdictions allows you to sort of preemptively, I hate to use that word because it's misleading, but to sort of kill first, knowing that at any given moment you're about to be attacked again. 
And so that's the theory of the defense in this case, that she's saying that she was being violently you know, uh, assaulted, sexually trafficked against her will, raped, um, and that her only way out, she couldn't necessarily, you know, kill or, or escape the way people would say, why don't you just escape? They have too many controls over her. And so she acted similarly, according to what she's saying. I don't know what's true here because we'll have to see what the trial says, like Ken said. Right. But what she's saying is she, I think her attorneys are raising a similar defense, claim of self-defense that is allowed in, in certain domestic violence situations that she had to take an opportunity to kill when she could do it, knowing that she was about to be raped again. Very it's very interesting it's, theory. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's a, it's right to the forefront. Um, a lot of women's groups and stuff are really following this case and um, it is, it's crazy stuff. So as we all know, Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted last week on this show. I even adjusted my statements and, Changed it to self-defense. Um, the mockery of this whole thing was the fact that, you know, last week when these guys were on, weren't on, I talked about the fact that Rittenhouse and his mother are now doing the whole media trail thing. And I, I felt like the, I felt like this judge should have did the, what they should have done with Zimmerman was not allow anybody to make any money off of this whole thing. He's doing this whole thing. And, had this office of two internships, congressional internships and stuff like that, which I thought was just gross, just gross. And then, you know, they threw Lynn Wood under the bus, who was their attorney at first. They claimed they fired Lynn Wood because he was a Trump guy and he was promoting this whole election theory was stolen. But then two days later, Wendy and Kyle Rittenhouse are in Florida with Trump in Mar-a-Lago, which contradicts this whole thing with, with, I, I don't know. I, I just thought it was crazy. Um, here's a picture of him with Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago just two days after he said they fired him for this. Um, your thoughts on this guys. I mean, everybody's kind of beat up the results of this trial, but just kind of your thoughts on what's happening now. How Rittenhouse and his whole media tour thing that they're kind of doing. Well, I think it's one of those situations where he's being too clever by half. Remember, he was cleared at the state level. There's still a federal civil rights investigation going on. And number two, he can be sued civilly. If you need to remember what happened to O.J. Simpson after he was acquitted in state court, he was sued by the, uh, by the, the family of, yep. of his wife. And remember, in a civil deposition, you don't have the right to keep your mouth shut. You have to answer the questions. If you don't answer the questions, they can be deemed to be admitted. Not only that, now you're going on on this lecture tour? Are you kidding me? Do you realize all of that, all that, uh, you know, conversations they're having about what he is saying is discoverable? So if he goes out and says, you know, says some stupid things, which he's going to say, that can be used against him in a civil case. Remember, the standard is much, much lower in a civil case. And not only that, if they charge to uh, charge him uh, federally for civil rights violation, all that stuff can come in as well. Separate jurisdiction. So I really think if he was smart, he would go to ground and and wait for people to get interested in something else other than him because he's setting himself up for a fall. I found that, you know, his defense attorney 
pulled away from him real quick. When this trial was over, that was the one thing I noticed that spoke volumes to me. His defense attorney was kind of like, I wish him luck, blah, blah, blah. But he was like, done with this. He was like, I, I don't get my statement. How did that look to you, Rob, when you saw that and your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I, I thought, obviously, I think you published some of what I wrote about this case in real time. And uh, I thought the defense team did a, an incredible job, including the lead counsel that gave that long press interview after the trial, which is what I think you're talking about. And, you know, he he didn't want to get into any of the political undertones about this thing because he was this was purely a defense. They had a strategy. They followed it. It was consistent with the law. They, they made it consistent with the facts and they did an incredible job. And, you know, while, while I personally think that Kyle Rittenhouse was guilty of these crimes, it's true that the evidence that was presented in trial was insufficient to prove it, especially beyond a reasonable doubt. And so, you know, when he testified, which he did incredibly well, they prepared him better than most defense attorneys I've seen uh, because they knew he was to have to testify to have a chance at winning. And so uh, they prepared him incredibly well and it paid off. Uh, and so you know, as soon as I saw him testify, I said, well, this case is a not guilty because there's, there's no way now there's, there's definitely going to be plenty of jurors that have at least doubt if they don't have outright belief, in right belief in the self-defense claims. So, um, so that's one of the, that's, you, you know, that's kind of one of the issues there. Now, you know, there, there is no federal investigation going on with him because uh, he killed white people and uh, there was Ooh. no racial overtones with this. So there, it doesn't fit under the 1983 federal civil rights enforcement. They, they looked at it, but they don't have they don't have a, a, a case there. So he's not going to be prosecuted by by the federal government. So it all depends on whether the um, surviving family members of the two people he killed or the uh, injured person uh, want to try to sue him civilly. And, and they would have a difficult time. It is a much lower standard, as Ken said. Ken's analysis is spot on. Uh, you know, at the same time, he's going to raise some of the similar issues. It would be very difficult. Uh, I'd like to see it happen just because I'd like to see him held accountable. I don't know if I was an attorney how excited I would be about taking that case. I think it'd be a very difficult case. You asked, though, about his behavior immediately post-trial, and, and here's what happened. You know, uh, who do you think was paying his legal bills, by the way? It wasn't him, okay? And it wasn't his mother. Uh, they they yeah, were getting money from right-wing groups that were, that were trying to make this into a political issue. That's why the defense attorney said so quickly after trial, we had nothing to do with any of that. We represented our client and nothing else, and I, and I, I believe him. He was very respectable in how he talked about this. But – the bills were being paid by political operatives, all right? And those same operatives funded Kyle and his mother in all expenses trip paid to Florida the minute they got out of, uh, out of the courthouse. The next day, they came to Florida. So you know that was planned. They were ready to go. This didn't happen spontaneously. And, and where did he go? He went to Pensacola to meet with Congressman Matt Gates. That was his stop number one. So if you want to associate yourself with Matt Gates. So be it, because he's one of the most disgusting people ever in public life. And uh, eventually the federal government will get him. As you know, he's pending his own charges for, uh, you know, sex with an underage girl and, and you know, his own transgressions uh, and things like that. Um, right. You know, he only got that seat because his father bought it for him. All right. He, he, he was able to 
buy himself a primary because he had far more qualified Republican challengers for the seat. But his father is an incredibly well-connected, powerful business person there. And he bought him the primary and that bought him the election because it's a very conservative district. No Democrat ever represents that seat. So, uh, you know, that's how he got that seat. And then he made, you know, he made the circuit from going from Gates to, to you know, similar people on uh, Southern Florida and then to Mar-a-Lago. So this was all politics. If you, you know, so I believe the defense team absolutely wanted nothing to do with that, which is why they cut ties the way you said. But for Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, despite his his lies in court about this, it was all about politics to him. And and he absolutely went there to be part of something. So, uh, you know, he and his mom have, you know, no uh, no place to hide from the scrutiny that they should face. And so he may have gotten off legally because that's the way our system works. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt is a high standard and it's supposed to be. And he was able to either create reasonable doubt or self-defense claims. And so that was the right result. Absolutely, no doubt about it. The jury made the right result and, and that's what it came down to. But he should rot in hell for the rest of his life and uh, or for the, his eternal life when he dies. And, uh, you know, and I, I don't think anybody in this country should ever give him a chance. Yeah, like I said, it was, it was crazy He's garbage. And I, I share the video last week because they wasn't allowed to use it in court. But there's a video of him uh, being interviewed by the police. And he's asking the police, when you guys look my computer over, can you guys erase my computer and delete this and delete all my social media? And I'm saying to people, I'm like, that's admission to guilt in my book. You knew what was on your computer. You knew what was there. You knew what you were searching. So for you to say that you didn't know who the Proud Boys were, or you didn't know what certain white supremacist symbols were, you're lying. You, you were lying. And it's just well, remember, so one of the things that the judge, one of the judge's erroneous rulings, and I wrote about this, I, I, I think Ken agrees, maybe not, but the judge suppressed a video statement of Rittenhouse from that night that occurred at a previous incident that evening where he said to people on videotape uh, something about at, at that moment, he didn't have his weapon with him. And he said, I wished I had my AR-15 so I could shoot those people. OK, so he he expressed a clear intent to want to hurt people, to shoot people, to kill people that evening at a previous similar incident. OK, yes. now the judge should have let that in, if not up front. He should have let it in after he testified because he clearly, clearly opened the door to that. And that's where the judge screwed up. Now, he 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 went off on the prosecutor. We talked about this on the show, I think. Um, but what the prosecutor did was he thought after Kyle Rittenhouse testified, he would be able to introduce that. Now, he didn't go about it the right, right way. He got himself yelled at and embarrassed on <laughs> national TV. But the fact is, that's why he thought he had a shot at it. Because at that point, the judge's previous, what I thought was an erroneous ruling, was clearly erroneous at that point. And, um, and that's, that to me was a shame because maybe that would have made a difference. I don't know, but it wasn't admissible. I mean, it, the judge didn't admit it. It was admissible in my opinion. I think the judge, that, uh, to me, that was the worst ruling in the entire trial. Uh, uh, there was a series of rulings that I wrote about, but that to me was the, the most significant. And um, maybe, it had a, maybe it had an impact, maybe it didn't, but that to me is, the, is what really went wrong here. Ken, anything to quickly add to that? Yes, very quickly. I, if I may break it down, if the videotape was coming in and Kyle Rittenhouse <clears throat> was not raising the issue of self-defense, I would agree with Rob, keep it out. But once he opened the door, as, as Rob said, yes, that videotape was 
clearly admissible for the purposes of refutation of of intent. Meaning, if you are saying, no, I never had any intent, it was strictly self-defense, the prosecutor should have been able to say, no, literally a couple of hours before you said you wanted to go shoot someone before he was faced with the situation where he was defending himself or others. And I think that was clearly, clearly a mistake. And that's Bush League 101. Wow. That's, I had to get you guys on because you guys weren't here for, you know, when that, when that all broke down. So I had to get that in here. Um, let's go on to the next one. January 6th, uh, Capitol Rider who stole Nancy Pelosi's podium. He was looking to get released for Christmas because he's got family members who are sick and this and that and blah, blah, blah. Just real quick, your thoughts on this one. I feel he should not be given any. I think it makes a mockery if they allow this man to see family at Christmas time. I think it's BS. Do not allow this man to go anywhere. You do the crime, you serve the time. That's how I feel. Ken, I, I mean, not squid. I'll let you go first. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, yeah, first of all, I, I agree with you. He should not be released just because it's a holiday, because, uh, you know, it, it's funny, just a, a quick deviation here. When I was the chief of criminal law at Fort Bliss in El Paso, Texas, the commanding general, who was a great leader, great commanding general, uh, you know, had a decent relationship, certainly with my boss and, and also <laughs> therefore with me, referred to me as the Grinch because uh, people were asking for clemency right around Christmas time. And they were saying, you know, if you could just let me out a month or two early, I could be home for Christmas. And my response, because I had to write a recommendation, you know, reminding him about the case and the facts and everything else, I'd say, just because it happens to be Christmas time isn't a reason to do that. What if that, what if what if it was May? Right. Do you not give people clemency in May because it's not Christmas time? It should be the same standard for everybody. Either you deserve to be let out or you don't. And they got pretty fair sentences at their trial. They don't deserve to be let out any earlier just because it's a holiday. If you don't want to go to jail on a holiday, don't commit the crime. <laughs> Ken? All right. I'm giving you the five second countdown. I was about to go full diesel. <laughs> five, four, three, two, one. All right. Listen up. I'm only going to say this goddamn <laughs> once. We are a religiously neutral country, which means we apply our laws regardless of your religious affiliation. Who gives a damn if it, it, it's your holiday? Okay? Just because this happens to be your freaking holiday doesn't make a difference about your sentence. As the colonel suggested, this was made. Do we give all the communists off because it's May Day? What about us Jews? Do you get? Do I get off in September when it's the high holy days for for me and Rob? Okay. <laughs> what about Ramadan? Do we give it off for them? No, you little weasel. You want this is drives me. I'm not going to say it because we're a family show and I can't use profanity. I get yelled at all the time. But it, get, but it drives me bad, bleep, 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 crazy. Okay? These, these goddamn... This, this is why you can't take white people anyplace. You got all these white entitled people who get accused of crime and think, oh my God, you should you, you need to bend over backwards to make accommodations because I don't want to get COVID. I've got a sick mother. It's Christmas. 
Do you realize how many people I've defended who've been sent to jail on their birthdays, on their mother's birthdays, on Christmas? I had one guy who I tried to get out of jail to go to his mother's funeral, and the judge told me to go, go pound sand. Okay? Wouldn't let him out for his own mother's funeral. So don't give me any of this crap. As Rob said, can't do can't do the time, don't do the crime. Yeah. And, and the other time. thing I would add, the other thing I would add is, is this real quick. It, it, part of my answer is based on the fact that these guys got really low sentences in the first place. They're not spending very much time in jail. A lot of people are spending less than a year, certainly less than two years in jail. So, you know, if you're spending 20 years in jail and you do to be released on January 1st and somebody wants to let you out a week early for Christmas, that doesn't bother me so much if you're serving 20 years. These people are only serving a couple of months and they need to serve yeah. every day of it, no matter what they miss, because they're 60, not serving anywhere near the amount of time that they should be serving. 65, for the crimes they yes. committed. 65 days. Exactly. I got a, I've got a guy right now. I'm not going to, I'm not going to give you his name because he's the case is still ongoing. He's looking at 18 months, every day of 18 months in the house correction for one simple thing. He walked around the city of Brockton with, with a firearm and he didn't have a license. He was not using the commission of a crime. He wasn't threatening anybody with it. He merely had it on his person. That's it. That's the only thing he's being accused of. He was not a felon in the possession of a weapon. He wasn't using the threat to anyone. Not domestic violence. Just because of that, he will do every day of 18 months. That's a whole nother topic for me. That 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 okay? bothers me big and time. This guy guys. and these clowns who are going in and trying to overthrow the government are getting... No, they should get 50 years, minimal, breaking large rocks into small rocks. Well, there's a, the, the, the big one that's on trial right now is the woman who bought, brought her uh, 14-year-old kid to the insurrection that we didn't hear about. This just all popped up this week because she was on camera. Uh, she's well, there are charged. thousands of cases. We don't know about most of them. <laughs> yeah. 14-year-old kid, they're talking about she should lose her kid and all that. Oh, it's just crazy. So uh, another thing that we're going to talk about real quick here, get the legal status on this one. Uh, we've been covering this opiate battle. CVS, Walmart, and Walgreens decided, hey, we're going to let the jury decide our fate. And guess what? They lost. The jury decided that they are now responsible for their actions in the opiate um, settlement, the opiate settlement and lawsuit that's out there. The reason why I got these guys on, we're going to touch base on this is because we talked about Sackler. Sackler in the beginning, was one of the first major groups that filed for bankruptcy. I believe, I forget, I couldn't remember if it was Ken or R Squared. They called it. When this happened, one of you guys was like, either you both agreed on it or something, but you both said they're going to make a mockery of this. And you, I remember Ken was explaining the bankruptcy process with this whole deal. And R Squared, I think you said, yep, they're just going to make a mockery of this. They're going to continue to do whatever I'll let you guys go back and forth on this one. I'll let our square go first on this Sackler because the judge has now called them out and is saying they're making a mockery of the bankruptcy. Well, what, what I said when we were discussing this was a couple of things. First, the family had siphoned off billions of dollars because it was a family owned company and they paid themselves exorbitant amounts of salary and what have you. And then Ken completed the record, so to speak, by indicating how obviously there is a mechanism to get some of those assets back when they could show that they were siphoning off corporate assets, that they were unjustly paying themselves. All that is true. Um, very well explained by Ken at that time. The issue was going to be that, uh, it, it, you know, there, there's, the, the money is not just sitting there, obviously. They've hidden it 
They, they, these, these people had legal teams and financial teams that were, you know, expert at putting the money, um, you know, taking it in ways that would survive scrutiny and putting it in places that would be hard to get it back. And then more directly, what we were talking about was the corporate entity itself that would have to pay the judgment. Uh, of course, you know, e even without the family uh, siphoning off money, uh, wasn't going to have enough money to pay because, look, you know, the number of people, the millions of, of victims uh, of potential class members in this lawsuit um, who would be entitled to large sums of money, th there's just no way that uh, that they would have that, that those kind of assets left and they would be filing bankruptcy. And so, you know, legal judgments have priority in a bankruptcy, but there's, even still, they're going to get pennies on the dollar. And that's really what the conversation was that we were having. Ken? Exactly. I just exactly what exactly what we said. The technical term is called the clawback. The, the trustee can literally claw back money that was given from corporate entities to third parties if he determines it was made improperly or, and this is the most important thing, not in the best interests of the corporation. Believe it or not, even if it's legal, the court said, no, this is not in the best interest of the corporation, so therefore you have to give the money back. I agree, unfortunately, with Rob, they, there are people who make a lot of money sheltering uh, assets from creditors and governments and using foreign countries. Uh, there are, I, you know, we could spend an entire show talking about how you can international asset funding and hiding in a number of countries, including a place called Palau, which you probably never heard of. I've heard the of it. Jersey Islands. You've heard of the Jersey Islands, a uh, place called Nauru, although unfortunately that's not used as much as more anymore. The Panama Papers were a fine example of that. I mean, that whole country made a made a literally a killing sheltering assets, although that's become less popular now because of the exposure of the Panama Papers. And you know what? You're not, you know, another. I'm sorry, go ahead, Rob. Oh, no, I, you know, you brought up a good point. And I was going to ask either of you guys, do you know where the Sacklers are physically living these days? No, I don't. Where they rush off to? Oh, no, I'm, I, I, I'm legitimately. Country, I'm legitimately asking. I bet they're not in the United I, the States. The last, the oh, last sure. address I sure heard of them was in Connecticut, but that that uh, information is old. That's probably their legal address for U.S. residency yeah. purposes. But I bet they're not in the United States. I bet they fled. I wouldn't be. Su I wouldn't be surprised either. And the problem is, they're probably in a non-extradition country, which yep. means we can't touch them with their money. Crazy stuff. The rich get richer, unfortunately. Yep. Um, we had a story about Kevin Strickland, exonerated after 43 years. And then we had the Groveland Four were granted full justice 72 years later, posthumously. Um, these are four gentlemen who were accused of murder. This Kevin Strickland was another one granted. Um, how does this, guys, I, I'm trying to figure out how does this come into play? You have the case like the Groveland Four. They're cleared of their crime. They're given full justice 72 years later after they've already, you know, they've been tried and they were, it's a sad story. You know, two of the gentlemen were being brought to the jail and the sheriff claims that they tried to break free and he had to kill them with their cuffs on. Another guy, he was dragged out by an angry mob and he was killed. And then you have this kid, Kevin Strickland, who was arrested and he was the longest standing uh, wrongly accused convicted man for 43 years how do we get to this point where 
you're seeing a lot of these now. You're seeing a lot of these cases being flipped. Ken, I'm going to go with you first because you're a defense attorney. How does one reach out to some of these defense attorneys and say, hey, we've now got this evidence or we now got this DNA because we didn't, we weren't able to do this stuff that now clears. How does this all come about and work real quick, if you can? Well, again, you got to look at it state by state. Certain states have very liberal laws of getting a new trial based on newly discovered evidence, like Massachusetts. Massachusetts, all you need to get to file the standard for filing a motion for a new trial in Massachusetts is evidence that did not exist at the time and could not have been reasonably secured by the defense counsel. That's a pretty low bar when you think about it. And basically, there are organizations that will help find attorneys. Like, I'm a member of the National Lawyers Guild. I'm also a member of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, NACDEL. Uh, and they are, we have, we have websites, we have constantly, they're constantly looking for lawyers that said, hey, we screened this case, we're looking for a body. So there, there are organizations out there that will help you find lawyers. The ACLU Legal Defense Fund, the NAACP's Legal Education uh, Fund, a number of nonprofits. I, I don't, oh God, there is a Hispanic one whose name escapes me. It's in Spanish, and my Spanish is horrible. That concentrates on on uh, people been wrongly convicted, and you know, a lot of times you just find a lawyer who's willing to say, "Hey, this sounds like a good case. I'm going to file a motion." Now. For example, Texas, however, it's virtually impossible to reopen a case because there's, a, there's actually a decision in Texas where factual innocence is not grounds for reopening a case. You've got to show that there was some malfeasance done by the prosecutor, intentional malfeasance. And that's a very high standard. Yeah, that's, yeah. But a lot of times is, you know, I don't think we're finding these cases are new. What is new is the amount of people who are aware of them through <laughs> social media. We talked about this before. Social media is a double-edged sword. It can do wonders. It can bring a it lot of it. attention to a case otherwise wouldn't get it. And I think that's a very positive thing. But on the second thing, it's a great breeding ground for racist, bigots, and trolls. Good with the bad, my friend. We got the conviction in um, Ahmaud Arbery just because of you know social media. Ask we had anything to add to that? Yeah, you know, first of all, I think Ken just made a great point that I think these cases have always been around and we're learning about them more because the public is more interested in them and social media and, and what have you. I think groups, there are so many of these groups that do these cases out there, the Innocence Project and so many others. Uh, and, and I think it's it's great. Uh, I hope that people support them because, you know, they're not just filing silly appeals on cases for people that, uh, you know, that, that had strong convictions. They're filing cases uh, excuse me, they're filing appeals in cases where there is strong evidence of impropriety and actual innocence. And, uh, you know, so they're, they're doing very important work by focusing on that. Uh, it, it's a shame that uh, not that it doesn't happen still, but it certainly happens far less frequently now because of, uh, of more scrutiny and better, better standards. But, you know, we went through an era of uh, you know, where there was much more corruption in the criminal justice system. And, uh, and, and that included, you know, racial bias and things like that. 
you know, nowadays DNA evidence has become so much more common that uh, it's almost impossible to exclude that type of evidence. Whereas 30 years ago, they were simply not testing DNA because they didn't want to know the truth. They didn't want to know whether it might exonerate the suspect they had because they just wanted to close the case and put the guy in jail without any consideration to whether they had the right person. That happens far less often now. It doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. There are certainly places uh, where you have problematic uh, prosecution offices or problematic law enforcement, or even worse, the combination of the two, which is where these things tend to happen. And, you know, I, I think we're moving in the right direction. I think that's where a lot of the criminal justice reform efforts are being focused. Um, most, if not all, district attorney's offices and attorney general's offices have these um, conviction review teams that go back on their own. They don't even wait for the groups to do it. They, are, of their own volition, are going back and reviewing cases where there might be a claim of wrongful prosecution, of DNA evidence, of, <clears throat> of something that they can look at. And they themselves are filing the petitions to overturn those cases or at least grant new trials. So it's, it's not just the, um, the advocacy groups that are doing it. You have the prosecution offices that, that all almost all of them, certainly in the, in the larger communities, have these teams. And so we're in a very good place now. Uh, eventually, they're going to catch up, right? They'll, they'll get the results they need to get in the cases. And the number of those cases will drop dramatically because it doesn't happen as frequently now with the scrutiny and the you know better rules. Um, we still need to do some criminal justice reform. Don't don't get me wrong, folks. You know we we clearly have some things we still need to do. Right. Uh, and right. I think that those efforts are ongoing now. I, you know Ken referenced the difference between Massachusetts and Texas, and yeah, that's that's one of the challenges. You've got you know over fifty different jurisdictions. You have obviously the federal system. You've got the fifty states. You've got D.C. You've got Puerto Rico. You've got the territories. And so, you know, some of them are much better than others. Some of them are absolutely abysmal. And it doesn't surprise me that, of course, places like Texas and Alabama are on the abysmal side. Oklahoma, you know, these places are travesties of justice. Their criminal justice systems are a joke. Um, there does Now, don't get me wrong. There are some very, very good people in those systems that are trying to make a difference, but they're outgunned. And they don't have the support of the legislature. They don't have the support of the, uh, of, of the power. Um, eventually, maybe they'll make a difference. Um, but you know, that's why there's a difference. And so you'll see some states that are continuing to exonerate people and some states that are on the verge of executing people that may not deserve it. Wow. And it's crazy because, you know, when you look at some of these cases, you know, there's prosecutors and, you know, there's DAs and people who have built careers and judgeships on wrongly accused crimes, you know, and it's just scary. And I hate to say this. I mean, we had a whole issue here in Brockton just, Three years ago with someone here and, and it was, you know, supposedly cases and this and that, but I'm not mentioning any names and, you know, it, it, that's a still an ongoing issue here. So, man, it's scary, but it's good. I might try to see if we can get somebody on from one of these groups. I think they would be pretty interesting to talk to. Um, let's see here. Oh, this is the story that I added, and I wanted Rob to talk about this. A former D.C. guard accuses Army generals of lying to Congress about the January 6th response. Now, we were on the air January 5th. We had our regular show. It was the calm before the storm. And then we all know what happened on the 6th. And we went live right on the 6th. We actually did a live show. We came on. We spoke about a lot of things. And there were a lot of things in question that happened on that date. Now, there were troops that didn't do what they were supposed to do. And some of those National Guard troops were controlled by, they were getting their orders from Texas and Florida, while some troops did do what they were supposed to There was a whole other stuff that, that went down uh, behind the scenes. Our squid kind of 
hinted at some things that he thought might be going on, but he wasn't sure. And now we have this former D.C. guard accusing the Army generals of lying to Congress about the January 6th response. I'm going to let our squid get right into this. Uh, you know a lot about this. We talked about this off air. So the the recent issue that has come to light is a colonel in the on the D.C. Guard staff uh, wrote a letter that has now become public. It wasn't intended to be public originally, but it has become public, which that's what happens when you write letters, you put things in writing. Uh, but he is accused uh, Pentagon leaders of lying in their testimony to the House Oversight Committee. And specifically, this was General Flynn, not not. Mike Flynn, but his brother, Charles Flynn, and, uh, and General Pyatt, who was on the Army staff, the Pentagon staff. And what he said was that the testimony that they gave before Congress was, in many cases, absolute falsehood, and in some cases, just gross exaggerations and, and you know, misinformation. And so those two need to be investigated if they aren't already being investigated. They're not currently in their positions, I don't believe, but there still needs to be some accountability there. The issue you may remember, um, I don't know if people watch this, you know, there have been so many hearings and things, people can't watch them all or maybe confuse the two, but there was a hearing that the House held uh, and then the Senate held uh, where they had the commanding general who has since retired uh, on schedule. He wasn't because of this, but uh, of the D.C. National Guard, they had the chief of the Capitol Police. They had someone from the Department of Justice and FBI. They had a series of about four or five people testifying that day. I don't know if you guys remember this, but the uh, commanding general, of the D.C. National Guard, uh, was incredibly credible and compelling and gave detailed answers and asked all the right questions. And he was talking about how he had his troops ready to go. They were there. They had mustered. They had their equipment. He even had them sitting on the buses because they were expecting a call any second to get to the Capitol to help. And he started making phone calls like, why haven't we been called in yet and what have you? And so this is what goes back to the Pentagon staff, the generals there who, let's face it, they're probably covering up for the president because we all know that President Trump didn't want the National Guard to intervene, right? He, want, he supported the attack on the Capitol and, and all the accounts were that he was thrilled by what he was watching on TV and he had refused as the commander in chief to call in the guard, which he had the authority to do. And you all may remember that after about two hours or so, Vice President Pence actually called them in, even though he didn't have the authority because the president was still the president. He wasn't, you know, uh, taken out of office by Article 25 or anything like that. And, and Pence did it anyway. And they listened to him and they responded, um, knowing that they just had to do something at that point. And they were willing to go with Pence's order when Trump wouldn't do it. So the issue all along has been what was going on at the Pentagon now? Granted, they didn't receive the authorization to go, but they had also, uh, General Flynn and General Pyatt, uh, were listed as giving bad advice to the administration and others in this planning, where they were saying that, uh, 
you know, they they had suggested that putting the National Guard at the Capitol would would look bad. It would escalate matters. They, you know, they had all these things. Now, you know, in hindsight, you could say, well, maybe somebody would think that that you know, if you if you had a military presence, it it, it could set a certain tone. Uh, you know, Ken and I from the from day one have been saying that the question that I want answered, and I still want answered because nobody has answered it, is who told them not to use deadly force to protect the Capitol when that's what the law and standards. Uh, say is the proper thing to do. And the only the only evidence that was offered was they were saying they they were afraid that if they started firing uh, their weapons, that that would that would uh, escalate matters with the crowd, that things would be even worse because they were outnumbered and the crowd had tremendous firepower. If you you know, you, we know that's true and they didn't want to be taking fire necessarily. So, OK, I, I, I get it. Hindsight's 2020 and what have you. But uh, there should have been a the the intelligence was there that something like this was going to happen. The National Guard should have been present immediately. If they weren't present immediately, they should have been called to respond much, much sooner. And then there's the question of what amount of force was was used, or in this case, not used to defend the Capitol. And so what this colonel wrote in his 36-page letter was pointing out the absolute dishonest testimony that these two uh, senior leaders of the Pentagon gave to Congress. Uh, and then, you know, he demonstrates why that their testimony was false and, and what have you. So it's, uh, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's a step in the right direction. Obviously, Congress has a copy of this letter. It's going to be part of the record for the uh, January 6th commission. And the House Oversight Committee and other committees that have been looking at this obviously have a copy of it. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, I don't know that this tells them anything that they didn't already know, but I like that it's public. I like that these two individuals, uh, you know, are publicly being condemned for what we knew at the time of their hearing was not, I, I won't say false testimony, but it certainly wasn't um, professional or, or commendable testimony. They were clearly covering up for the administration, the previous administration. Right. So. Uh, I'll, I'll stop with that observation for the moment. But, uh, you know, this is at the end of the day, I don't know what happens to these two, but I, I always like to see that the record, you know, get straight. Ken, anything to add to that? Ken's muted. Oh, he's muted. He must be talking to someone. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Sorry about that, guys. No, no problem. I haven't agreed with what Rob said. And as I said before, when when I was organizing protests in D.C. when I was getting trained about protests in D.C. There was a very simple rule. You put a toe on the Capitol steps. You put a toe on the fence around the White House. You put a toe on the Supreme Court steps. You're on your own. You're dead meat. That was the line, that was the line of death. So this idea that they were worried about escalation is a little misnomer. Everyone knows not to do it. So sorry, guys. And if it makes you look bad, tough tough noogies. Well, that's just yeah. right. And so that's why the argument was if they were going to be outnumbered because they knew the size of the crowd, that's why the National Guard should have been there earlier. And by the way, Governor Hogan of Maryland uh, said that he had his his National Guard troops ready to go. And he, he was also wondering why they haven't called for help, because the National the Maryland National Guard was ready to go and augment the, the D.C. Guard <coughs> and, the, and the Capitol Police and also in Virginia. Uh, the Virginia National Guard was ready to go. I mean, there, there were all kinds of it wasn't just D.C. You had thousands and thousands of National Guard troops that were within an hour of the Capitol that could have and should have been there 
ahead of time or certainly much faster than when the DC guard was, was called. And, you know, who, who knows what would have been different, but it would have been the right thing to do. And, and if every one of those people who stormed the Capitol was shot dead, so be it. Yeah, it's a tough one. It's still, it's going to be something and we're coming up. We're coming up on the year anniversary people. <laughs> we're just, we're just a month away from the year anniversary of the January 6th insurrection, which was probably one of the toughest moments for our show of all the shows that we've done. Um, it, it was just heartbreaking and it was crazy. Uh, entertainment booth real quick. I've been talking about this company, BMG. BMG has been buying catalogs of music from all of these artists and getting the rights because guess what? People don't want to pass things along to their kids anymore. Kids don't want the responsibility. So Motley Crue is the latest of bands to sell their entire catalog of music to BMG for the tune of $150 million which means you will probably start seeing a lot of Motley Crue music used in commercials and ads and things of that sort. Um, I'm like, wow, you, you can't keep that music within your family. You know, you used to pass these masters on to your kids, but I guess today it's sell it before you pass away and then take that money and invest it elsewhere to support your family. I guess that's, that's how it goes. Heading into the sports booth. I called it. I've been talking about it for weeks on this on this show. Patriots beat the Bills 14 to 10. Windy weather in Buffalo. But like I said to people, granted, two for three, 19 yards, Mac Jones. Belichick knows that he's playing Buffalo in two weeks. He was not going to show his entire poker hand in this first game, regardless of the weather. It was going to be a run game. I said this for weeks. I said this when they called it. With a rookie quarterback, he wasn't going to show them everything. And here's what the funny thing was today. Belichick is interviewed this morning, and they ask him, well, how do you prepare for Buffalo for this game that's coming up in two weeks? He says, we had a whole pass game <laughs> that they didn't see. And he chuckled. And that was, to be honest, I hate to, for people who don't really follow football, this game last night, was one of the legendary coaching jobs of Bill Belichick. And I'm just going to break it down like this for you. There have been two people in history who talk crap about Belichick when they became coaches. Rex Ryan, he made him look bad. Adam Gase of the Jets, he made him look bad. Last year during COVID, Sean McDermott, the Buffalo Bills, had their best of time with the Patriots. And during the press conference, Adam Gates stopped the press conference. He sat there and he said, hold on, let me just take this all in. And guess what, people? Belichick remembered that. Belichick is like Michael Jordan. When Michael Jordan talks about people pissing him off, last night's game was a big FU to Sean McDermott. Because when Belichick put that two-point conversion up, Sean McDermott should have went and did his best to put two points up. Because that came back. Everything that happened in that game, it all came back to that two-point conversion. Because if you don't have that two-point conversion completed, guess what? It's a three-point game. And now Josh Allen isn't forcing that pass on fourth and 15 to Knox in the end zone that Adrian Phillips makes a great play on because they were down by four instead of three where they could have kicked the field goal and just tied the game and sent it into overtime and possibly had momentum. So last night's game was a great – I talk about wins – that was a great Belichick coaching job win last night. And this is a big deal for people around here. And it it hurt Buffalo. 
If you don't think that this didn't hurt Buffalo as an organization, you have no idea what it just did to Buffalo. Especially if the Pats sweep them this season and take the AFC East title. This will set their organization back because this was their year. Ken? Um, It was an excellent game, but I think you're reading way too much into it. Buffalo has been on the downside for the last couple of games. They started out strong. Oh, they have. Strong. They they have. Do That's their usual. Year. And they're going to come back strong. I think it's going to be a tough game in, in, it's going to be a tough game in two weeks. I don't think anything's locked up, but I don't think it hurt the organization that much. Frankly, I thought I thought it was a very tight game. I thought everyone was a little – I mean, Josh Allen, he's a relatively young quarterback. He's, you know, shake it off. To quote Bill Belichick, we're on to Cincinnati. Indianapolis. Well, that was <laughs> – yeah. I, I, I swear. Right. Just, 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 <laughs> yeah, I you know you guys – it's you had a little celebration down there too with the Giants. You guys uh, retired Strahan's jersey. Much, much applauded. Yeah, that was two, well that was deserved. two weeks ago. Yep. Uh, you you, you know, weren't on, so I had to. Yep. Yeah, you know Strahan's a class act. He's he's one of the hard. He was one of the hardest working guys in the NFL, and he's an incredibly nice guy, and and he still is a hard working and a nice guy. So I mean, I, I I like when the good people get recognized. So you know, good for good for him. Uh, you know, for last night's game, obviously it was important for the Patriots to win. It seems to me that they that they're going to win the the AFC East. That that's that's clear to me now. And I wouldn't have said that at the beginning of the season because this looked like it was going to be Buffalo's year. They were supposed to be dominant. They were probably going to be a Super Bowl team, but they've lost what six out of their last seven or five out of the last yeah. six or something like that. This is one of those collapses that destroys a t- an entire organization. Buffalo will not recover from the collapse that have that has gone on since you know week five week six of the season I, I don't know what's causing it I don't know enough about the the, the team internally um, I don't think that it's a tremendous number of injuries or anything like that but it is absolutely shameful they need to they need to fire the coach they need to make some some big changes uh, if you're a Buffalo Bills fans and I know some people who are uh, sorry got nothing for you well the um, press conferences spoke volumes last night after the game Buffalo Sean McDermott and two of the players lost their cool at the press conferences last night. Well, they've got to be frustrated. I mean, they beat the Saints, but then they've lost, you know, the, the other five out of their other six games. It's just it's just pathetic. I mean, uh, if you're a professional football team, you don't accept that kind of thing. They lost games they clearly should have won is the problem. It's not like they were losing to the best teams. They were losing to crappy teams. So, uh, you know, it, it's just it's just absolutely pathetic. You know, the, the Dolphins were supposed to be better than they are this year. Uh, they've been on a run. They've won, they, they've won a bunch in a row now, but they never should have dug themselves this hole. They may not make the playoffs still, but at least they're going to end the season, uh, you know, showing what they were supposed to be. But, you know, this this should have come down to the Bills and the Dolphins this year, and it's going to be the Patriots. And there's no doubt about it now. And in, in my opinion, it's going to be the Patriots. You know, the, the Giants, they need to fire everybody. We've said that before. But Joe Judge is a terrible coach. And, um, you know, I've sort of been somewhat hesitant to say that before when we've talked about it. But, you know, you guys may remember the conversation we had when the Giants hired him and you said, why? And you guys are Patriots fans and he was your coach uh, with your special teams coach. But, uh, you know, nobody knows why we said, well, maybe they saw something in him. Maybe there was something. But as as you could see, he's a terrible coach. Uh, what, What do they call him on ESPN? A babbling fool. I mean, that's uh, you don't they don't normally talk about coaches that way. They call them a babbling fool. So, um, you know, what are you going to do? That's just uh, 
that's just pathetic. So, you know, the Giants, and again, five years in a row, no offensive line. How does that happen? So they fired their general manager. Dave Gettleman's gone. So that'll be a good, good thing. And uh, they've got two picks out of the first six, I think, or two picks out in the first seven. So they've got to pick a uh, quarterback. Jones was obviously not the right guy. They, they, you know, he showed some signs, some, some early signs of promise as a rookie, but never developed. And maybe that's because he doesn't have more than one second to throw the ball. But uh, who knows? So the Giants are in a world of hurt. And I, you know, I, basically, if you look at it, the whole AFC is wide open. All the teams that were supposed to be dominant this year have had, you know, Patrick Mahomes sucks this year. And he was supposed to be, he and the Chiefs were supposed to be a dominant team. They stink. And it all starts with the quarterback. Mahomes is abysmal this year. And the Chargers were supposed to have a great season. And they're barely going to make the playoffs. I mean, the whole AFC is up for grabs, which is exciting. This is going to be, for a, for a football fan, this is going to be an exciting way to end the season. But what a pathetic display by a lot of teams that are supposed to be better. And and the NFC, you know, no different. Ken? I, I agree, but I will say one thing. I got I am sorry. I have said this before about Patrick Mahomes. Patrick Mahomes is a great quarterback when everything goes his way. The problem is when everything doesn't go his way, he falls apart. And it's exactly what's happening this season. And I said that last year. I said he's a great quarterback as long as everything's going going his way. But he doesn't do well under pressure. And I disagree. I think the NFC has got one team who is really living up to their potential. That's the Cardinals of all of all people. Yeah. Yes, they're, granted, they've they're had always it the is, 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 is your schedule, but they're ten and two right now. Yeah, no, this is the Cardinals. Yeah, they're looking good. That's why I said the NFC has a couple of standout teams. I didn't right. expect the Packers to be up there. And, uh, you know, I mean, there, there are a couple of surprises, but there's really, you know, other than the Cardinals, there's really nobody that looks like there's nobody you're afraid to play right. in the NFC, except maybe the Cardinals. Exactly. Yeah. And exactly. it's funny because I, exactly. I just actually, there was actually a story as we move on. Um, there was actually a story I just read online in regards to the Giants O-line cap problems and how that major signing that we kind of picked on Rob about, they said that that, that O-line signing affected their 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 salary cap for years. And we, we kind of predicted that. And, you know, it, it's a shame that that coach will answer for that problem. But that when do you start looking at the upper management, the GMs and those guys who make those decisions, Rob, though? Yeah. I mean, what I would, what I would say is, uh, you know, if, if anybody could figure out how to pressure the Maras to sell the team, that's what the Giants really need. The Maras need to right. go. They, they obviously don't yeah. care. I mean, you know, they were they were an original owning, you know, uh, ownership team. And, and for a while there, they were a class act. But I don't know what the hell happened to them. Maybe they just had too much money. Uh, I don't know. But they're not doing what they need to do to, to be NFL owners. So I think the Maras have to go. That's probably the biggest problem. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, moving on to the sports. Well, uh, well hey, hey, oh, you know, maybe, maybe we should start a GoFundMe page for Rob so he can buy the Giants. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'd be a better owner than the Maris. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, heading into more, last story of the sports booth, Kentucky Derby's Medina Spirit died of an apparent heart attack. Three-year-old horse. Uh, she won the Kentucky Derby, and she collapsed with a heart attack. The debate has now begun because... If people remember, Medina Spirit was tested for PEDs uh, shortly after winning the Kentucky Derby, but then they were cleared. But they said that you know there was no proof. Um, this is going to be hotly debated. To be honest, people, I'm not a fan of horse racing anyway. I, you know, I, I, have, I have my own values and my own feelings about horse racing. I'm not going to bring it here because I know there's a ton of people who love it. 
Um, but yeah, just a sad thing. A lot of money spent um, in horse racing. The rich get richer. So uh, Biden bombshells. Here we go. Right out the gate. Uh, McConnell cuts a last minute deal with the Democrats to avoid a shutdown. Um, you were talking about this. You said when Biden got in, you said that you would love to see McConnell work with this this Democratic uh, team that's now we're now seeing and these these this first couple of years, man, um, McConnell has really shown that the Republicans and Democrats need to work together. Um, he was a big backer of the the bill that that he was touting, and now we've got this one here to avoid the shutdown. Oscar, you've been very vocal about McConnell. You called this one. I'm gonna let you go first on this. No, I mean I, I'm I'm disappointed. I I, I don't oh, remember really? saying that. Um, you know. They supported the infrastructure bill because it would have been political suicide for them not to. There was nothing objectionable in it. And infrastructure was something the Republicans had been calling for as well for decades. And so at the end of the day, even though a lot of them voted against it, uh, enough of them voted for it. And so they can they can try to steal some of the credit for that. So that didn't surprise me that they supported it. But other than that, they've done nothing. They've done absolutely nothing in, in you know, they, they've all they've done is blocked legislation. They've used the, the arcane Senate rules, which are ridiculous, to block things from being done in the Senate. They've blocked everything from coming to a vote other than the infrastructure bill. And so, in my opinion, they've been they've been even worse than they were previously as far as just obstructing. And in fact, McConnell's most recent statement was that they're not even going to come up with a, a platform or, or a set of policies for the 2022 election because they don't think that they need to. I mean, that no one's ever really followed that strategy before. Both parties usually come up with some ideas. They try to run in some, some ideas, some things they want to accomplish. And, and the Republicans are like, nope, we're not, even gonna, we're not even gonna pretend that we have an ideology anymore. They're just running to be Republicans. You know, they're running to be you know, the, the new extreme party that they are. So uh, I blame McConnell for a lot of what's going on. I don't think he's been okay. honest about anything. Um, now, as far as this last minute deal on the uh, on the debt ceiling issue, well, remember something, this debt that they're paying is the Trump administration debt. The Biden oh. stuff hasn't come due yet. This is this. They're paying the debts that were run up by Trump's four trillion dollar addition to the national debt. That's what this is. So if Republicans want to continue to say, well, we're, we're not going to pay for this, we're going to let the Democrats pay for it. That's another thing that would have been political suicide, because at the end of the day, enough people in this country, especially those who vote, especially the independents, are going to say, yeah, wait a minute. This is the Republicans running up four trillion dollars in debt under Trump and then not paying for it. So so they had to do this. They had to do this. So I give them no credit for it. Oh, see, see, this is what I'm talking about. See, because they make things seem a certain way. And I forgot I completely forgot that we're paying off that debt. That trickle down. I forgot all about that. It takes that. a few makes... years before it catches up. That's right. It takes, yep. Yeah, I can't. Anything to add to that? Thank you for opening my eyes on that. Uh, no, no, nothing to add to that. Rob, as usual, hit the nail right on the head. Unfortunately, I wish I could say he's wrong, but <laughs> he's not. And that really pisses me off. <laughs> and then the last thing. Uh, I've been keeping my eye on and Biden bombshells. Um, we were talking about China flexing its military muscle. Now we've got Russia flexing its military muscle around the Ukraine. Um, there's some worries that they might try to take these borders over again in 2022. Um, the Biden administration is already looking into possibly 
possibly getting U.S. citizens out of the Ukraine before the Russians take over. Um, there has been some heavy fighting going on along those borders. Guys have been losing their lives on the Russian side and the Ukraine side. So we definitely want to keep up on that. Like I said, I follow RT, which is unfortunately Russian-controlled media, but it's it's right in your face. They're out there when things really go down and happen. Um, I've been keeping kind of an eye on all of these military moves that's been going on. I don't know if Oscar has been. I'm going to ask him about this. Have you been keeping up with what's going on with Russia and, you know, testing those borders around the Ukraine? This has been the ongoing things, even when Trump was in office. Yeah, this has been going on for a long time. And, you know, Russia has always had designs on Ukraine. They were never going to accept an independent Ukraine. And, you know, Putin was simply willing to go ahead and, and take it by force, whereas Yeltsin uh, wasn't going to do that. He was trying to be more democratic leaning and, and have a more of a, a you know, of a, a different sphere of, of influence in the region there. And so Putin is obviously not committed to any kind of democracy, any kind of, of, of liberal government or anything like that. And so he had no problem. First of all, Russia was in a bad situation, so he used it. And it, in fact, the polls show that his invasion of Ukraine lifted Russian nationalism and support for him within the country. So it's all politics for him, uh, but it shouldn't surprise anybody because, you know, obviously the Ukraine was an internal part of the Soviet Union for many years, uh, you know, part of the Soviet Union, not just part of the Eastern Bloc, but part of the Soviet Union. And uh, they didn't last very long independent because, uh, you know, Yeltsin didn't make a move on them, but then Putin did. So, uh, you know, they, they, this isn't, this shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. Now, the issue is, you know, what is what is the United States and NATO supposed to do about it? Now, is it, it looks like the uh, phone call between Putin and Biden today went well. Obviously, they're not going to show that. They're not going to record it and play it for the media, for the American public. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, the, the National Security Advisor came out and gave a briefing after the call and after President Biden spoke with our NATO allies uh, as he was getting ready to then brief the Gang of Eight in Congress. Uh, the National Security Advisor, Mr. Sullivan, came out to give us a basic rundown, and it looks like uh, the president did what he was what he needed to do in the phone call. Now we don't know what Putin's going to do; he's he's not always predictable. But um, at the end of the day, there's very little the United States and NATO can do. We can't make Ukraine part of NATO; uh, it's not feasible. And if we were going to do it, it needed to be done a long time ago. Now would not be the time to do that. It's too late. Russia right. already owns right. half the country. And in fact, they own more than half, if you think about it from a resource and strategic standpoint, because they annexed the Crimea and everything else. There's very little left of Ukraine. So, you know, NATO can try to rush some more advanced weaponry to Ukraine to try to help them fend off the Russians. And, and that's probably worth doing as a show of support and to make it painful, but they can't stop Russia from invading if they want to. So the question is, is there something that Putin wants more that we can offer to him in some kind of secret deal to get him to pull back from Ukraine or not? But I, I don't know, this is, this is one of those challenging issues. You know, uh, President Obama was called to task for not doing more when Putin invaded Ukraine in the first place. And I don't know what we could have done, but yet he didn't handle it greatly. That was part of his inexperience with foreign policy. So there's right. some valid criticism there. I don't know what we would have done. Are we going to go to war for Ukraine? No, we're not going to fight Russia in a war for Ukraine. But, you know, this is a continuing problem. Trump obviously didn't care. He told Putin he can do whatever he wanted in Ukraine. And now we yeah. have Biden. Biden's trying to learn from Obama's mistakes and also tell Putin, I'm not Trump. You don't own me. 
So, uh, right. you know, we'll right. see what happens. Right. It's, 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 this is one of those real geopolitical challenges that there's no right answer. There's no good answer. There's no good solution. But maybe there's a private deal to be made that there's something Putin wants. I don't know. Yeah, I want to say it was just it was just mere weeks after Trump had got in that Russia went right to the right over the border, right over the border. And it was the like, little oh, green what, what's up? yeah, yep. I remember that. I remember that. It was real fast. Ken, anything to add to that before we wrap up? Uh, no, unfortunately not. Once again, uh, Rob hit the nail square on the head. There's very little we can do. Remember, Russia is right next door to Ukraine. We are not. Ukraine's always been deemed the breadbasket of Russia going back to imperial czarist days. So this is nothing new, unfortunately. Yeah, it's just been a constant, constant battle. So, hey, guys, we are at 826. Uh, Maddie C Sports for you and me. He's got his stuff coming up at 8.30. He's got Igdalia Medina. Medina's going to be on his show. Again, I want to thank everybody for supporting the show and purchasing Sinistorm Beanies. Also, the podcast that I've been helping produce. She likes, she talks football podcast, Draft in the Circus, Ox, Mike Radio. Happy Hour with Lito and Maddie C Sports for you and me and Talk Back with Gloria Shea. And, um, I got to thank Benson for having us out for the It Factor being judges. We got a toy drive coming up this Friday night beyond the Maria's performance. So if you want to make sure to donate a toy or come down, that is this Friday night in, I believe, Fall River and the third annual Women's Empowerment Benefit. And also until December 17th, you can drop off toys at the Brockton Police Lobby for the Project Angels toy drive. And um, that's about it. We're about to get out of here and let these guys. Go around the horn, say their goodbyes, and they'll be back in 2022. So, Oscar, I'll let you go first. Yeah, in the interest of time, I'll, I'll keep it quick. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. It's always a pleasure to come on and talk about these important issues. And like I try to say to folks, it's really important that everybody stay informed. But you know what? You've got to read legitimate sites. There are plenty of them out there. They have a range of opinion. But don't read the garbage. Amen to that. Want to thank all of our listeners, all twelve of you. Happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, Happy Kwanzaa, Happy New Year's. Be safe. We'll see you in twenty twenty two. Yeah, I got to thank everybody for tuning in, hanging out with us again. Eight thirty, Maddie C Sports View and Me. Um, again, it looks like the show was kind of going in and out. Um, there's some serious internet problems. A lot of people with recording sites are down. Uh, but we're going to be back here next week. I've only got two shows left before the year closes out because I take two weeks off for the holidays. And um, hopefully I'll be able to see these guys. I think it's January 4th, guys, is when we're going to be back with you guys. January 4th uh, is the first Tuesday. And that will be two days before we celebrate the one-year anniversary of the insurrection. So I'm dying to see kind of how this country plays this out. Um just real quick, anybody got any thoughts how you think it's going to be low-key by the media, or do you guys think they're going to really ramp ramp this whole thing up and revisit this? I feel like it's going to be low-key. I feel like they don't want to bring attention to it. Yeah, I think it'll be low-key, unfortunately. Yeah, I don't Not think there's good. much they can do, but we'll certainly talk about it in January. We'll, we'll tease yeah, it we will. Yeah, because things cases are still going on. Cases are still going on. We don't want anything to influence. So, uh, guys, I want to thank you guys for coming on here. I want to thank everybody for tuning in the booth. SpongeBob, do me a favor. Take us home so Maddie C. can go live at 830. Here we go. Well, see you next Tuesday.
Thank you for listening to The Booth on Hoobazoo and HatcherRadio.com. Please follow the Facebook page and subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcast, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. The Booth is a Sinister One production hosted by Sinister One. I've got to start hanging out with friends that are a little more intelligent and understand politics instead. It's just that I'm up on this level up here and all my friends are down here. Me, nah. You guys, nah. Maybe a little more down, down in here. Screw you guys, I'm going home. I smoke, I drink, I do my thing. These bitches hating, so you know I got to make it plain. Don't do cocaine with your chick, my main. We stick together, true forever, yeah, you know we bang. I miss those days, which was easy. If only I make it, no repeat. Now that I done upgraded, I've been upstate, but y'all think I'm playing. And I gotta hit now for these weak ass hoes who think I ain't playing. Try me, try me, and I'll probably end up laughing cause I never back down. I'm that chick with a clean ass whip. I don't need that shit. I got my own now. I ain't hurt, I get tired of fussing, fighting, guess I gotta crack down. Don't mess with me, cause on everything, I'ma have to bring the whole city out. W-H-O-O-B-A-Z-O-O, that's it, was it, I come. W-H-O-B-A-Z-O-O, that's it, was it, I come.